Hi, Mike here. There's a little strong language in this episode, but no collapsing or earthquake noises. Amid the destruction and death of February 22, 2011, the collapse of the CTV building was by far the single most deadly event. Of the 185 people killed in the earthquake, 115, that's almost two-thirds, died at CTV. The next worst building collapse killed 18. Almost every building where somebody died in the earthquake would later be looked into, but none of them were scrutinised like the CTV building. It was subject to three major investigations. Each one asked a subtly different question. Why had this happened? Why did so many people die? And should anyone be held responsible? This episode is the story of those three investigations. Coroner's inquest, a royal commission, and a criminal investigation. Plus, one very strange digression into a world of fraud, stolen identity, and luxury yachts. You've heard snippets from these investigations before, but now we're going to dig a bit deeper. This is where the story of the CTV disaster becomes a saga. Because, as you'll learn, there was bitter disagreement about the answers to those three questions. Now, when we say dig deeper, we're not going to subject you to every last detail of these investigations. That would take forever. One of them ran for nearly four years. The shortest lasted just under three weeks. That was a coroner's inquest into the deaths of eight of the CTV victims. This was the group trapped in the rubble on the eastern side and were known because of cell phone activity to have survived many hours after the collapse. A coroner had already made a summary finding for these victims, along with all the others. But another inquest was called to find out why they survived so long but weren't rescued. You heard the stories of these eight victims in episode three. The inquest into their deaths, which began in late 2012, became a de facto investigation for the entire rescue operation at the CTV site. Because decisions made by the most senior rescuers on the site would have a profound effect on their fate. But this inquest really only came about because of one man, the husband of one of the eight victims. His name was Alec Svetnov. And Alec, your wife is trapped in there. Yes. I talked to her about 12.30 and uh, she was still alive. I don't know now. Alex Svetnov kept a vigil at the CTV site for almost 24 hours after the quake. His wife, Tamara Svetnova, called him on her cell phone from inside the rubble. Alec and Tamara tried in vain to work out exactly where she was so rescuers could concentrate their efforts on one spot. More than once, Alec clambered onto the rubble himself while talking to his wife on the phone. He started banging to see if the noise could pinpoint Tamara's location. Senior Constable Stuart Martindale was Alec's minder, search partner and fellow traveller that night. He chased Alec onto the rubble, looked after him and even talked to Tamara himself. I thought, oh, we're going to find her, you know. I honestly thought we were going to find her. But that's one regret that I'll take to my grave is not being able to save her, I think. And feeling that I was so close, but yet so far. Alex Svetnov too was haunted by his wife's death. That she was so close to him, but he couldn't save her. 
I want people responsible for all rescue services in New Zealand to learn from Tamara's death so that somebody else does not die in similar circumstances in the future. Alex Svetnov kept pushing for a more detailed investigation into his wife's death. Finally, 18 months after the earthquake, his lobbying paid off. The coroner agreed to look into the death of Tamara and those trapped around her. Coronial inquests are usually pretty sedate affairs. It's a court, so there's all the formality that comes with that, as well as the procedure. Lawyers, affidavits, exhibits, and lots of long, drawn-out exchanges between counsel and witnesses. This inquest had all of those things, but it was also different to most inquests, and it was different largely because of one man. Who was in charge of CTV site? Simple question. Yeah, who was? My question, please. I did. You did. I'm trying to answer your question. You're not answering it. Please answer it. Is he the correct one? Nigel Hampton is a lawyer. He was Alex Svetnov's lawyer at the coronial inquest. He's slightly eccentric, with a bushy beard and his own way of doing things. His friends in the legal fraternity around the country like to call him the Canterbury Ranter. He's also a pretty formidable operator. He's been a lawyer for more than 50 years and a Queen's counsel for more than 30. I covered the coroner's inquest for stuff back in 2012 and Hampton's performance then has always stuck with me. He was genuinely distressed by what happened to Tamara Svetnova and the others. Hampton did the case for free because Alex Svetnov couldn't afford to pay. And what troubled him from the start was his ability to speak to Tamara by telephone. This is Hampton in an interview with me last year. Communicate with her and in his own mind narrow down the place where she was, but that not to be acted upon by those around him. Many more lives might have been saved in this building. That's why I'm passionate about it. It's wrong. The coroner's inquest into the death of Tamara Svetnova and the seven other victims started in late 2012, more than 18 months after the earthquake. Alex Svetnov was concerned that the effort to rescue his wife and the others wasn't as well organised or resourced as it could have been, and that rescuers had, in fact, killed those eight people while trying to save them. Nigel Hampton was about to make that case and the heroes of the CTV disaster were about to go on trial. I'm Margaret Gordon. And I'm Michael Wright. On February the 22nd, 2011, a devastating earthquake shook the city of Christchurch, killing 185 people. Two thirds of those people were in one building, a building that should never have been built. From stuff, this is Collapse. Honestly felt like I was on trial and I was scared that I was going to go to jail. Nobody put their hand up to be in charge. Nobody. There's Gerald, or Will, whatever he's calling himself today, still sitting on the back of his boat having a G&T at five o'clock. I mean, you're kidding. Joint inquest into the deaths of 
Jesse Radoble, Isra Madal, Rika Hayuga. More than 100 people gave evidence at the coroner's inquest that began in late October 2012. Mostly fire and USAR personnel, that's urban search and rescue, but also police, St John paramedics and military. A forensic pathologist, Christchurch City Council staff and members of the public. The inquiry was ostensibly looking into the deaths of just eight people among the 115 CTV victims. But it quickly became a lot more than that. The entire rescue effort came under scrutiny because the fate of Tamara Svetnova and the others came down to variations on one big question. Who was in charge of CTV site? Who did you think was in charge in Christchurch? Did you not have an obligation to put someone in charge of that site, please? Who was in charge at the CTV building? Soon after the earthquake struck, a Christchurch demolition contractor named Alan Edge got a call asking him to take his equipment into the city to help with rescues. Diggers, excavators, a bunch of other stuff. Later that afternoon, Edge found himself at the CTV site. He did not like what he saw. The organisation was uh, shit. Whoever yelled the loudest got the most response. I actually thought it was a bloody joke. Nobody put their hand up to be in charge. Nobody. Edge was one of several witnesses at the inquest who said much the same thing. No one seemed to be in charge. Now, Christchurch at this point, only a few hours after the quake, was in chaos. I know you're busy, but get something here. We've got three employees being here. People were still evacuating the CBD, and emergency services were trying to get a handle on all the damage. We can't afford to have people in this area. No one knew yet just how bad the CTV building was, how much worse it was than any other site in the city. Rescue efforts were hampered by blocked roads, broken pipes, and the fact that many rescuers couldn't do any rescuing. They'd been through the shaking like everyone else. Remember, only about half of the 60-strong urban search and rescue team in Christchurch were able to deploy. CTV, of course, was affected by these things, but it also had some problems of its own. First, the site was effectively split into two chunks, and they were very different. There was the relatively accessible west sector and the utterly pancaked east sector. People on each side talked to each other, but there was no real cooperation between the two. Second, the rescue effort was the work of a whole lot of agencies. Police, the fire service, St John, civil defence, the Christchurch City Council, and of course, USAR. USAR sat within the fire service, but it wasn't made up of just firefighters. There were medics and engineers and other experts as well. And all this made jurisdiction very unclear. For example, the first uniformed person on the scene was a cop, Sergeant Mike Brooklands. He was based in Kaiapoi, a small town north of Christchurch. He just happened to be in the central city that day, responding to a burglary when the quake hit. He was at CTV within five minutes. KAS here. KAS is Mike Brooklyn's call sign. We have buildings collapsed with people inside. I need fire to address Cash Street Road. Cash Street ASAP. We have a building on fire with persons trapped that we're trying to get out. So Brooklyn's was the first to take charge at the CTV site. But remember, he was only a police officer. 
he didn't automatically have command over, say, the fire service. Once firefighters got to the site, they organised themselves across both sectors, the east side and the west side. And some, but not all, of those firefighters belonged to USAR as well. Now, it's not like no one ever thought about what would happen when police and fire and other agencies all responded to the same disaster. There was a procedure for what should happen here. A command post should be set up with a single person in charge. That person would be responsible for managing people and equipment, talking to managers who were off-site, and all the logistics stuff that rescuers didn't need to be worrying about. But that didn't happen. Here's Nigel Hampton again. There was a fire in that site from early on, and the protocols would say that the fire service should have been the lead agency. And so the lead agency should have been the one establishing an incident command post, taking control of the chaos. And so you get the absolute incongruity of people working on the side where Tamara and the other people around her were wanting concrete cutting and and sound detection instruments and not being able to get them because there was no chain of command, as it were. Yet on the other side of that same building, there was that sort of materials available. How was it that that could happen, that there was no coordination between one side of the collapsed building and the other? Simple. Nobody had taken control. Hampton hammered this point over and over again at the inquest. There was no single commander at CTV. All the problems, he said, followed from that. Lack of equipment, lack of communication, lack of organisation. Any time a senior manager was testifying, particularly from the fire service, he just laid into them. I remember he stood right at the back of the room, near the press bench. So when he yelled at these witnesses, who sat at the front, it sort of drew the whole room into the argument, which raised the tension. Some of the people he targeted felt pretty affronted. One of those was Dave Berry, a firefighter and USAR officer. Yes, says Berry, mistakes were made, but... I didn't expect it to play out to the rescuers at the front line. You know, guys that were there all night working um, to be slammed like that in the court. I'd say at one stage there, I would have thought after a while it would have been, hey, if there's an earthquake tomorrow, I ain't going. Yeah, I guess you do it next time. In case you missed that, that was, fuck yous, you do it next time. Dave Berry spent 12 hours at the CTV site. He oversaw the amputation of Kento Akuta's leg. The eight Japanese survivors pulled out of the King's Education cafeteria. He was in charge of that. Today, he's the head of USAR's Southern Task Force. And Stuart Martindale, the cop who'd been by Alex Svetnoff's side the whole night, who talked to Tamara and did everything he could to help find her, he felt like he got worked over in court too. They were throwing these questions and these allegations at me and I was like, hang on. And I understand the purpose of the coroner's court, you know, and they do have to strip things apart and hit that raw nerve to get the real answer. But for goodness sake, I just went back and said I felt like I was obviously accused and I was scared that I was going to go to jail, sort of thing, you know. <laughs> Nigel Hampton wasn't out to get the Dave Berries or Stuart Martindales of the CTV rescue, but he was a man on a mission. He thought the rescue had been mismanaged and he was determined to prove it. And in a sense, he did prove it. He extracted admissions from various senior managers that the leadership on the day had been lacking. But it didn't really come to anything. 
after hearing evidence from more than 100 witnesses and cross-examination of nearly half of them, the coroner made the somewhat self-evident ruling that while better leadership might have made the rescue more organised, there was no way to say it would have led to Tamaris Fetnova and the others being rescued alive. Hampton didn't have much luck on his other big argument either, that the delayering work done by the digger operators may have in fact crushed the survivors. Much of this argument was based on Alex Svetnov's testimony. He was adamant that while he was at the site, there was a particular moment when a digger moved the wrong piece of debris and the pile came crashing down. No other witness could recall anything like this. Several said they were uneasy about the delayering generally, but that was it. Again, the coroner said, no real way of knowing. Watching from the press bench, the whole thing felt to me like an exercise in hopelessness. Eight people died terrible deaths. The people who thought that wasn't good enough couldn't prove their case. And the people who tried desperately to save them were left feeling, well, you heard how Dave Berry felt. If one worthwhile thing did come of it, it was some public reckoning by the fire service. It had actually commissioned its own independent review of its earthquake response many months before the coronial inquiry, and it didn't make for good reading. Fire service management, that review said, was disorganised and left staff under-resourced and feeling isolated right across the city, not just at CTV. Dysfunction between the fire service and USAR, which sat within it, was so bad, the review said, some USAR officers ignored fire service command structures. Major structural changes followed. The independent review was much more scathing than anything in the coroner's finding. But the coroner still said the rescue effort at CTV had been disjointed, and better organisation, including a single overall commander at the site, might have saved more lives. This was exactly the issue that Nigel Hampton and the other lawyers had exposed throughout the inquest, along with a host of others. The delay in USAR teams flying in from the North Island. Equipment being sent by road and being delayed even longer. The chronic communication problems and, of course, the lack of an overall commander. At the inquest, it emerged that by the late night of February 22nd, there had been 13 fire service senior managers, the top brass, in Christchurch. Several of them visited CTV, even talked to some of the rescuers, but left again. While the heroism of many of its staff that day was indisputable, the fire service couldn't ignore the systemic failings. On the second to last day of the inquest, one of its national commanders, Paul McGill, fronted up. I want to acknowledge the families of the eight people who survived that terrible collapse and died before we could rescue them. That was a dreadful situation and we're very sorry. Lawyer Nigel Hampton wasn't impressed by any of it. Not the apology from the fire service or the coroner's milquetoast findings. The hopelessness of what happened at CTV and the lack of accountability that followed weighs on him. And with absolute certainty, I think that Tamara and those immediately in her area could have been and should have been rescued alive. Hampton fought hard in court to make that case. 
But he says he never meant to tarnish the names of those people who tried so hard to save Tamara Svetnova and the others. In making all the points and the criticisms that I have, and this applies to whether they were civilians helping or to police or fire service or digger operators or whoever, the people that were there and were working that night, the people doing whatever they did on that site were truly heroic. About the same time the inquest was happening, another investigation into the CTV building was playing out across town. In an airy church hall, the Royal Commission of Inquiry into the Canterbury earthquakes would examine every building that caused a death in the February earthquake, whether it was a suburban fish and chip shop or an office building in the CBD. That at least initially began the construction of the building. All up, more than 30 buildings were scrutinised. The Commission sat, on and off, for nearly a year. The investigation into the CTV building took three months. No other building took more than a week. You've already heard a bit from the Commission of Inquiry, the sorry history of how the CTV building was conceived, designed and built, and how it defied building standards, inspections and safety assessments. But before we get into the inquiry's conclusions, we're going to digress for a minute and tell you about perhaps the strangest subplot in the entire saga of the CTV building. It starts on the very first day the Commission heard evidence, June the 25th, 2012. The first person to speak was Stephen Mills QC, giving his opening remarks, basically setting the scene, describing the collapse, running through the witnesses who'd be appearing and summarising the evidence they'd give. A few of these names you've already heard. People like David Harding, the engineer who designed CTV despite not really knowing much about multi-storey buildings. His boss, Alan Ray, who was renowned for getting buildings designed within a hair's breadth of the building code, Manager Michael Brooks, building inspector Russell Simpson, engineers, building manager, technical experts, dozens of people. Eventually, Mills got to a guy named Gerald Shirtcliffe. Efforts have been made to obtain evidence from Mr Gerald Shirtcliffe, who was the construction manager. He's in Australia... And we've not been able to make more than email communication with him. He's not been prepared to disclose his actual location. But as the construction manager... I was there that day covering the Commission of Inquiry for the press newspaper and the Stuff website. Mills's opening statement that day was useful because it let us know what would happen. But it wasn't dramatic, like a prosecutor in a criminal court. It kind of went on a bit. So when he got to Gerald Shirtcliffe, things suddenly sounded interesting. But we have done our best to just make it clear to him that there could be uh, some potential criticism of him by other witnesses. Well, uh, you don't need to be uh, apologetic about it, Mr Mills. If he is, does end up being criticised. He only has himself to blame. That is true. It's, it's disappointing, uh, really. Yes, it is. So I wrote a little news story about this how this one witness, the construction manager on the CTV build, didn't want to appear and was so uncooperative he wouldn't even say where he lived. I filed the story and that was that. The next day, I was back at the commission and I got an email. The sender's address was info for mw 
Michael Wright, I guess, info for mw at gmail.com. Subject line was Gerald Shirtcliffe and CTV building. And the email read, in part, He was convicted of GST fraud in New Zealand several years ago and served about eight months home detention. He was arrested in Australia under the name William Fisher, which is the name he uses in Australia and also in New Zealand occasionally. He has a master's in engineering from New South Wales, but here's the kicker, and which has never made the papers, he got this by fraud and never did an undergraduate degree anywhere. He is resident in Brisbane working for an engineering company. They do not know of his past. Reporters get tips all the time, and not all of them are legitimate. But this one had a good feeling. It wasn't overblown or conspiratorial. It had names, details, events, things that could be verified. And this guy Shirtcliffe had been the construction manager for the CTV building, maybe the second or third most important person on the project. I was busy, so I forwarded the email to my boss, and it ended up with one of my colleagues, investigative reporter Martin Van Banen. Martin focused first on the GST fraud conviction. If that was true, it'd be easy to stack up. You might recognise Martin's voice here if you listen to Stuff's Black Hands podcast about the Bain family murders. And I was able to talk to the victims of that fraud. They were a a nice couple whose lives really had been ruined by the fact that they lost all that money to Shirtcliffe. But it turned out that Shirtcliffe hadn't spent much of his working life in New Zealand. He lived in Australia a lot. And Martin learned he'd also worked in South Africa. This part of the story was a bit of a challenge because Shirtcliffe had been in South Africa more than 30 years earlier and the company he worked for then had been bought out and changed its name. On a long shot, Martin called the new owner and asked if there were any old-timers around who remembered a Gerald Shirtcliffe from New Zealand. And I, I lucked out there really because I found someone who actually worked with Shirtcliffe and Fisher. So that was the connection. That gave me the connection. Shirtcliffe and Fisher. There was a real person, an engineer from the UK, who had worked with Gerald Shirtcliffe in South Africa, named Will Fisher. The same name, according to the original tip, that Shirtcliffe was now apparently using to work as an engineer in Australia. It wasn't proof of identity theft, but it was one hell of a coincidence. The pieces were starting to fall into place. Someone named Will Fisher was working for Worley Parsons, a huge global engineering firm, in its Brisbane offices. Again, just like the tipster said. Someone with exactly the same name, William Anthony Fisher, appeared on a register of engineers in the UK. That Will Fisher had graduated from the University of Sheffield in Yorkshire in 1967 before going to work in South Africa. Martin Van Banen got on a plane for Brisbane. While Martin was working on this story, something else strange happened. Gerald Shirtcliffe, a.k.a. Will Fisher, finally agreed to give evidence to the Royal Commission about his role in the CTV building. Mr Shirtcliffe, you referred to reports in the media about you not being cooperative. And, as luck would have it, the day he finally showed up was one of the days I was covering the hearing. Extradited from Australia back to New Zealand. I've often wondered why Gerald Shirtcliffe decided to do this. Like, what was the upside for him? He was obviously reluctant to start with, and if he was the charlatan it very much looked like he was, then why not just keep your head down? 
Yeah, maybe some lawyers or a commissioner would tut-tut and say you were uncooperative or bad at your job back in the 80s. But the alternative, being exposed as a fraud, was much worse. Mr Shirtcliffe, Mr Brooks told us that when he employed you, you told him that you'd worked in South Africa. Shirtcliffe's appearance that day was one long farce. He testified via video link from Brisbane and, at every turn, he tried to distance himself from the CTV project. I had nothing to do with that, I wasn't there, that was the foreman's job, I can't remember. You could tell the lawyer questioning him was getting frustrated, so he moved on to the matter of Shirtcliffe's name. Is it correct, firstly, that you did work in South Africa? Yes, I did. What name were you living in South Africa under? Who are you looking at, Mr Shirtcliffe? Answer the question. Okay. You, you cannot get any advice from me, you need to answer the question. That's Shirtcliffe's lawyer at his side in Brisbane telling him he can't help his client respond. The name was Shirtcliffe. Were you not under the name of Fisher? No. You sure about that? Yes. What about in Australia? I changed my name and I have always worked in Australia as Fisher for the whole of my working life. And what about South Africa? We've cut a few of these pauses down. Sometimes Shirtcliffe took more than 10 seconds to answer. Uh, Look, I can't remember, I can't tell you. I can't remember. You can't remember what name you lived in South Africa under? No, well, I think it was Shirtcliffe. But you're not sure? I was living in Australia, I said I lived as Fisher. Sorry, I didn't hear the last bit. You were living in Australia. And I lived as Fisher. But Fisher and Churchill were one and the same. Right. When that excruciating exchange finally ended, Gerald Shirtcliffe sat slumped in his chair, staring at the floor. He looked like a man whose life was falling apart before his eyes and there was nothing he could do to stop it. A couple of weeks later, Martin Van Bainen was in a lawyer's office in Brisbane sitting opposite Gerald Shirtcliffe. In the previous two days, Martin had staked out Shirtcliffe's house, confronted him in his garage and paid a guy with a dinghy 50 bucks to taxi into an exclusive marina to get a picture of Shirtcliffe's 13-metre-long yacht. He had a lot of information, but it still wasn't enough. He needed to push Shirtcliffe for answers. It was a very confrontational, aggressive, angry meeting where I probably said too much. But in the end... Gerald didn't keep his mouth shut. Martin needed to get Shirtcliffe talking about his work history, where he worked and, crucially, when. Improbable as it was, Martin couldn't actually prove at that point that Shirtcliffe hadn't gone and got an engineering degree in the UK under the name Will Fisher at the same time as the real Fisher. In the meeting that day, Shirtcliffe slipped up. He told Martin that he had joined the Australian Institute of Engineers in 1972. It was a mundane detail, but it was crucial. Once we knew that he'd become a member of the Institute in Australia in 72, we knew he didn't have enough time between leaving South Africa and ending up in Sydney to actually do the degree. Which meant 
The only way he could have joined Australia's engineering fraternity and started a master's course was by stealing the real Will Fisher's identity. His name, his birth date, his birthplace and his engineering degree while they were both working in South Africa. Martin's story ran a few weeks later. The fallout was swift. Shercliffe was fired from his job and stripped of his master's degree from the University of New South Wales. In Australia, Channel 9's 60 Minutes programme picked up the story. Brisbane man Gerald Shercliffe conned his way into the building trade. For 42 years, this fraud masqueraded... The Aussie journalists had an even bigger travel budget than us Kiwis. They went to the UK to talk to the real Will Fisher. That makes me feel pretty rotten, you know. I mean, my name is stuck there like mud, isn't it? Will Fisher returned to England and never saw Gerald Shirtcliffe again. Strangely, he never saw his engineering degree again either. I couldn't find it. It, it, it vanished. Yeah. Amazing coincidence, isn't it? It certainly is. And they were able to stake out Shercliffe's home for three days in a van with a fake sign. The reporter was Liam Bartlett. Margaret spoke to him about the story late last year. That's her you're about to hear laughing. The producers got a sense of humour and I think it was painted sweet air plumbing. <laughs> so the four of us sat in that van... And I can tell you it wasn't sweet air at all, but uh, we stayed there waiting for Mr Shirtcliffe to, you know, come out and uh, jump in his car and then we could, you know, follow him. On the third day, Bartlett and the crew finally confronted Gerald Shirtcliffe on camera in the car park of a hardware store in Brisbane on a Saturday morning. Sir, you were the construction manager on a building that killed 115 people. Sorry, I have no clue. Well, let's, let's forget about the New Zealand... He ran out of the store and ran towards his car and, of course, we chased him. Well, I said chased him at a leisurely pace. He's, you know, not exactly Usain Bolt. But uh, he got to the car and he reached for his keys and went for the keyless entry and the radio microphone that I had on. That wireless frequency somehow jammed the lock. So as he was trying to get into his car, he kept pressing the button and electronically... (laughs) It was doing nothing, which I think was divine justice. So it gave us a lot more time to continue to ask him questions. Not that, to be truthful, not that we we got much more out of him. What about all the other buildings that you say you've been part of the construction? Can you just tell us... What about the Kingsgate building in Sydney? It's 33 storeys. Along with the identity theft and the connection to the CTV building, there was the small matter of Gerald Shirtcliffe's 30-year career as an engineer. Gerald Shirtcliffe is now the subject of police investigations in both New Zealand and Australia. As you just heard, Shirtcliffe was involved in the construction of the Kingsgate Hotel in Sydney. If you know the city, that's the high-rise in King's Cross with the big Coca-Cola billboard on it. It turned out Shirtcliffe had worked on mining projects, power stations and even the 80-metre-high flagpole on the new Parliament House in Canberra. But the investigations mostly fizzled out. No problems were flagged on any of the projects Shirtcliffe had worked on, and neither Australian or New Zealand police pressed charges against Shirtcliffe. The only real repercussion was a civil case brought by the Queensland Board of Professional Engineers. In 2014, 
Shercliffe pleaded guilty in magistrate's court to 146 charges relating to making false or misleading statements and working as an engineer without credentials. He was fined $500,000. It seemed like a lot of money, and Shercliffe's career was over. But he was at the end of his working life, and he was pretty wealthy. He owned a yacht, a Mercedes, and a comfortable house in an upmarket Brisbane suburb. Liam Bartlett is at a loss as to how Shercliffe was never charged with any crime. I mean, there's got to be something emanating from all those lies. He's got to be accountable, surely. And uh, nothing. I I mean, you know, here comes the tumbleweed through the middle of town. And there's uh, Gerald, or Will, whatever he's calling himself today, still sitting on the back of his boat, the Vagabond, having a G&T at five o'clock at the Royal Queensland Yacht Squadron. I mean, you're kidding. And on CTV, Shercliffe said he only visited the building site once a month. Turned out this absentee approach meant he was never really liable for any of that building's faults either. He was fired from his job at Williams Construction too, by the way. One more Shirtcliffe story was uncovered in these investigations. In 2005, Gerald Shirtcliffe had been convicted of GST tax fraud. This was the case the tipster had mentioned in that original email to Mike. Shirtcliffe was living in Australia at the time and spent a week in a Brisbane jail insisting he was Will Fisher. When he finally admitted who he really was, he was extradited to New Zealand, convicted and sentenced to 20 months jail. He only served two weeks before the sentence was commuted to home detention. A Christchurch couple who knew Shercliffe a little agreed to take him in so he could see out his time. The husband showed Shercliffe a diesel engine design he'd spent years developing, where the motor could run on diesel as well as another type of fuel, such as ethanol or LPG. Shercliffe seemed very interested. When Shercliffe's sentence was up, he hightailed it back to Australia. A few months later, the Australian Patent Office received an application for a new dual fuel injection system for diesel engines. The name of the inventor listed on the application was Will Fisher. A Royal Commission says the design failures were so serious it should never have got a building permit. The Royal Commission of Inquiry into the Canterbury Earthquakes released its report on the CTV building in December 2012. The Commission's entire findings across all buildings filled seven volumes all up. CTV had an entire volume to itself. Some of the technical parts are impenetrable unless you're an engineer. But outside that, it was a pretty readable narrative. It told a story much like what you heard in the last episode, The building was conceived in the construction boom of the 1980s. It was under-engineered and its design flaws went unresolved for more than 20 years despite numerous opportunities to identify them and at least two instances where people did. The Commission zeroed in on the same issue that engineers Graham Tapper and John Hare both flagged. The connections between the floors and the shear wall system weren't strong enough. When the quake hit the floors couldn't transfer the energy of the shaking to that wall, so they broke off and pancaked down on top of each other. 
There were several more major problems, including steel and concrete construction steps that were either botched or missed out entirely. This stuff can be hard to visualise, and even harder to describe, so if you're keen to really get your head around some of the nitty-gritty of the design and construction flaws, go to stuff.co.nz forward slash collapse. There's graphics and diagrams and more words there that will help make these issues a lot easier to understand. All of these problems amounted to a disaster that was avoidable. The Commission's report laid out the litany of mistakes during the design and consenting of the building. Engineer David Harding's errors, the lack of supervision, Council Engineer Graham Tapper's futile efforts to get the problems fixed, and Alan Ray likely intervening to convince the Council the building design was sound. We conclude, the Commissioner said, that the CTV building should never have been issued a permit. Not everyone agreed with these findings. David Harding insisted the intensity of the shaking in the February earthquake was more than the building was ever designed to withstand, regardless of any mistakes he made. Alan Ray said, yes, there were problems with the building, but that wasn't the primary cause of the collapse. What about the thousands of aftershocks before the February quake that chipped away at its strength? The warning signs and all the cracks and shaking the workers in the building reported the engineer who inspected the building didn't look at the structural drawings and there were no follow-up checks done after the big Boxing Day quake. These were plausible arguments, but they didn't add up to an alternative theory for the Royal Commission. The main reason why the building collapsed, it said, was the intensity of the shaking combined with the flaws in the CTV design. The Commission had been tough on a lot of witnesses, not just Ray and Harding. Anyone who'd been closely involved in the design, construction or inspection of the CTV building was grilled about what they did, or in many cases didn't do. This included people you've heard from, like Williams construction boss Michael Brooks, council building inspector Russell Simpson, and the hapless construction manager Gerald Shirtcliffe. But the heaviest attacks were saved for Alan Ray. Ray gave evidence several times, and each time he was on the stand, He looked wooden and emotionless. He may have been trying to appear respectful, but it just came across as evasive. He looked like a guy who was trying as hard as he could to stay out of trouble. Plus, he was the boss. Whatever excuses he gave, this whole mess happened on his watch. To the public, especially the families of the victims who saw the building design as the root cause of the disaster, it made Ray an easy target. He was unlikable, and he looked guilty. Over the course of the commission, he became almost a pantomime villain. When the Royal Commission report came out, New Zealand Prime Minister John Key called it grim and sobering reading. In addition to exposing a string of problems over the design and construction phases, it also made some recommendations around improving building standards training, and how collapsed buildings were investigated. Over three months of hearings on CTV, the Canterbury Earthquakes Royal Commission had laid bare a shoddy building project and systemic failings in the institutions that should have prevented it. Royal commissions aren't set up to apportion blame, but the door was now wide open for someone else to do just that. A few weeks after the report was published, 
a policeman, a lawyer and an engineer got together to discuss the findings. The three of them had gathered at the request of Detective Superintendent Peter Reed. Reed was the most senior detective across Wellington and the whole South Island. He'd read the Commission's report and wondered if it might be a police matter. But I got those three together and got them to have a look at all of the material. This is Reed. And asked them to give me a view as to whether there was anything that we could do in terms of a criminal investigation. The group came back and said, yes, but it'd take a lot of investigating. So Peter Reed brought in Becker, one of the biggest engineering firms in New Zealand, to examine the case and consider one key question. Was there anyone involved with the CTV building who might be criminally responsible for its collapse? This was a big ask. Becker was looking into a host of people connected with the building, and they were engineers, not cops. The job took about eight months. By now, it was the middle of 2014, more than three years since the earthquake and nearly two years since the damning Royal Commission report was published. But the story of the CTV building was far from over, because from the huge brief that Peter Reid had given the engineers involving dozens of people across the design, construction and inspection of the building, Becker had come back with two names. They eliminated all of the other people that we put forward, and it was Dr Ray and Mr Harding. Alan Ray and David Harding. Harding, the engineer who had designed the building and made several crucial mistakes, and Ray, Harding's boss, who was sure Harding was up to the job and saw no need to keep a close eye on him. The police would now start their own, even more involved investigation into the CTV collapse, headed by Detective Superintendent Peter Reid. It would be another three years before Reid would sign off on the conclusion. It is recommended that one, a charging document be filed detailing an offence of manslaughter against Ray, and two, a charging document be filed detailing an offensive manslaughter against Harding. Each of those charging documents would specify 115 counts of manslaughter against each man, more than any New Zealander had ever faced. Next time on Collapse. This was a long, a long play. It felt very much like a bit of an emotional roller coaster. And from there, I uh, proceeded to just sort of bury myself in the bottle. We have been fighting and we continue to fight for justice. Nobody can silence us. Collapse is a stuff podcast written, produced, and presented by Michael Wright and me, Margaret Gordon. Additional reporting, research, and creative input by Mark Greenhill. Script editing by Adam Dudding. Music by Henry Nicol. Sound mix and design by Chris Sinclair. If you want to know more, head to stuff.co.nz forward slash collapse, where you'll find links to every episode, as well as photos, graphics, and feature articles. You'll also find links for subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and so on. If you're listening on Apple, don't forget to give Collapse a five-star rating and a review. It helps other listeners find us. Today's episode included audio from TVNZ, 60 Minutes, New Zealand Police, the Department of Internal Affairs and the Ministry of Justice. 
Thanks also to The Age and Nine. This podcast was made possible with help from New Zealand On Air.